It's 11.32 in Melbourne. Top of the morning, or the afternoon. 55 degrees, that's winter down there. Considering we're 57, <laughs> that's not saying a lot. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places to dive, and scuba the news. Obsessed episode 496 recorded live May 27th, 2021. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I have really nothing to complain about except for my own mistakes. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, enjoying the uh, warm temperatures for our summer. So it's about 57, and I think Melbourne's got 55. So their winter is about like our spring summer. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So Melbourne, they're, how, how far are they into running into winter-type weather? They're just the opposite of us. Yeah. We're getting in the summer, they're getting in the winter. And it's like what, right now it's almost noon time there. Yeah. I keep trying to get those people on that side to send me the lottery numbers <laughs> for the next, you know, and I'll split it with you. Now you get eighty-five percent. I just want fifteen. Oh, you only want fifteen? Well, was... guy, somebody just won that. What was it? Six hundred and eighteen million yeah. last week. You know, my chance of that's not bad. You know, what my chance of winning that is. Well, you got to buy a ticket. Ah, uh, I, I I <laughs> yeah, I, I know there's a catch somewhere. Yeah. Well, I donate my money for the education because I'm sure that's where the money goes. I mean, that's oh, of what course. I was told about yeah, 10, they, 15 years. They, Either it was a, the schools or the road, I forget which. It, it goes somewhere. Yeah, the road, schools, road, Oh, yeah, something. it goes somewhere. It goes somewhere. Not my, not my pocket. <laughs> We'd like to thank everybody who is in the chat room tonight. Uh, we had quite a few in Discord, and we gave them the link to get them in the YouTube when we go live. So we appreciate that. It's going to be a short episode. I left my laptop charger at home, so I did the show notes real quick earlier. Uh, I can do it on a, it's a USB connection, so I did it on a charger. Got up to I had a hundred percent at about ten after the hour. Here we are 30 minutes later, and I'm down to 44%. So I'm chunking away at a, about a percent and a half every minute. So uh, we're at about 40%. So it's going to go quick. So if all of a sudden everything blanks, then it's probably the end. <laughs> That's it. That's all for this week. I have a show note. We have a limited number of articles, partially because of that. And we thought maybe we'll just get it going a lot quicker this week. So let's go ahead on that and jump right on into the news. Let's see, I had the first article up all queued, and they say demolition resumes on the Georgia shipwreck after a big fire. So that is down there. Uh, as much as we covered, you think I'd remember the name of the ship, but I'm drawing a blank right now. 
salvage crews on the coast of Georgia resumed sawing apart remains of the overturned cargo ship on Thursday, two weeks after the wreck caught fire. The anchor chain measuring 400 feet or 122 meters attached to the towering crane returned to work Thursday. It is slowly cutting through the shipwreck steel hull, said Coast Guard Petty Officer 2nd Class Michael Himes, spokesman for the multi-agency command overseeing the salvage efforts. Engineers inspecting the Golden Ray determined it was safe to continue demolition work for the first time since the wreck caught fire May 14th and burned for several hours. Inspectors are still assessing whether parts of the hull were weakened by the fire. Himes said he'll just adjust plans as necessary before remaining sections are cut away from the ship and lifted for removal. The Golden Ray capsized uh, with about 4,200 automobiles on it. And then if you've listened before, you'll know the rest of the, the details. So it looks like they got back to it. There's that little that photo there. The it smoldered. Well, this away. one is we could have had last week. They had the the smoke and the flames and all the mm-hmm. uh, fire nozzles spraying water. Yeah. So I wonder if that spilled any oil and stuff out either. They said that there was some additional sheen uh, when we covered it before, but I haven't seen anything. I looked at about two or three articles to see which one may have any different information, and I didn't come across anything. I didn't get. I didn't come across what exactly was burning either. I know the heat. You're going to have combustion on the paint and stuff like that, but not from the amount of flame and fire or smoke that we've seen here. So I was curious exactly what was burning. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't really clear. Um, no. And then here we have. Right in our own backyard, Lake Michigan shipwreck that was sunk in 1887. Sales again, 134 years later. South Haven homeowner looked over a bluff and saw the remains of shipwreck that had never been there before. The city of Green Bay schooner had moved. According to MSRA, Michigan Shipwrecks Research Association, over the course of the last 200 years, some 500 shipwrecks became total losses among the west coast of Michigan. Only about 20 of those wrecks still exist, and only a handful of those are nearly publicly access beach where non-divers can see and, see and learn from them. And this is a quote from Valerie Van Heest. Uh, one of the accessible shipwrecks from the city of Green Bay schooner, which sank off the coast of South Haven on October 1st, 1887. Many people flocked to the beach because it was so easy to see the wreck in about five feet of water. Is Its bones and remains lodged in a sandbar just north of Deer Lick Creek Outlet, which is located three miles south of the South Haven Channel. For 134 years, the wreck was a staple of public curiosity until sometime in either late 2020 or early 2021 when the ship decided to set sail again. A May 2021 South Haven resident who owns a home overlooking Lake Michigan saw what appeared to be the remains of a shipwreck 50 feet offshore in front of her house. The resident who has requested to remain anonymous paid a visit to the Michigan Maritime Museum where she reported a discovery. She told us she lived in a property for 40 years and hadn't seen anything like it before. Uh, we've had people report potential shipwrecks that have found all the time, but this particular instance is an area we just didn't know about. The Maritime Museum is a collective partnership with MSRA, so Deming immediately called Valerie, alerting her to the discovery to see the team could visit the site to investigate. And then there's a, a drawing. They go on, but uh, how how common is that? One, for, I don't think it went anywhere. 
because when we played with it, God, 30 years ago, part of it was in the bluff. If you took that bluff down, you're going to have mm -hmm. parts of that ship. Right. It's sort of funny. Last week, I had an opportunity to fly the coastline. Unfortunately, I did not fly it up toward South Haven, but I went all the way down to Michigan City. You could see the bottom, half a mile offshore, the entire length I flew. I got a sore neck trying to lick out the window the uh -huh. whole damn time and watch for <laughs> aircraft as I'm flying, looking for what that big spot on the bottom is. And I went as far, well, you've dove the Muskegon. We talked about it last yeah. week. I went that way out. You could see it. Okay. It was, it was I wish I'd had somebody with me. And a good camera. <laughs> and a good camera. That's that's the other half of it. Yeah. Well, because, you know, there's a, a couple of boats that are along the shoreline towards Michigan City. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of nice little blurry items that would have been nice to get a shoreline reference and a picture. Yeah. And we could have maybe gone back and see what was that big blob there? Because that's what those wrecks look like, big blobs when you get that far off. So so you don't think that this one's actually moved? No, I do not. Okay. I can believe those parts, but mm -hmm. that major hull part ain't going nowhere. You realize that's the same day as the uh, Havana sunk. Oh, in the same storm? Same storm. Wow. No, I didn't. Yeah. They ran aground. They figured they could. Uh, and again, I keep reading different reports on it, especially what they said. They deliberately put it ashore. They figured they could get off. Uh, of course, they didn't. Most of them died. Uh, the Havana threw the anchor out, dragged anchor till it sank. But uh, it fared, their, their uh, sailors fared a good bit better. Yeah. But it sank at the same time, also with a cargo of iron ore. Sank like a stone. But I will say the next time I get up, go down a little low and see what I can see. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see that because this is the article. There was quite a discussion in the preserve about this as well. So then we have the last. So I told you we're moving quick. I'm down to 25%. A possible <laughs> resting place of a Great Lakes most iconic shipwreck unveiled with photos and a new book. Wow. Imagine it. So with that lead up, what possible wreck could this be? Um, the Griffin. <laughs> yes, the Griffin. Of course. The most, the, most, the most claimed to be found and never found wreck in the history of the Great Lakes. A group searching for the remains of the 17th century French ship has said. Uh, I think this is Steve and Kathy that spoke at uh, a year before last mm -hmm. up there at the uh, Diver Showcase. Yes. Yes, this Remember is. Remember they were going to go up to look for this? Mm -hmm. Yep. The group's leader, Steve Liebert, and his wife, Kathy, uh, released a book this week detailing historical information they've gathered for 40 years explaining why they believe the wreck is the Griffin. Liebert's search has been a contentious one involving federal court battles in the state of Michigan that lasted almost a decade. A visit from a French top marine archaeologist in 2013 ended in a split among researchers working at the site. A French team agreed with Liebert that the beam of wood taken from the lake that June was likely a bowsprit of a ship. American scientists conclude it's probably a piece of a commercial fishing net. The beam was not attached to anything and no ship was found. 
Steve Liebert resumed his search with members of the original team, friends he had met in Dayton, Ohio, while learning to scuba dive in the early 80s. In 2018, they dove in a location that Liebert first located using Google satellite imagery. The site, he said, his crew had probably motored over the boat 100 times. Liebert says numerous details about the site suggested a very old ship. He says metal fasteners are not threaded. The wooden pegs are constructed in a manner of 17th century shipbuilding, and the nails are handmade of wrought iron. There's nothing on that vessel that I can find that says it's a modern-day vessel. The book released this week lays out detailed research Lieberts have spent most of their adult lives engaged in, searching for the elusive vessel sailed by French explorer uh, René Robert Cavalier, on oh, some French names, <laughs> Sudi LaSalle. Uh, the Griffin disappeared, returning home from the main voyage in 1679. It was last seen struggling in a storm near what is now Washington Isle in Wisconsin. The book's title, The Griffin in the Huron Islands in 1679, indicates the port of a couple places understanding the location of the Huron Islands in their search. They say people have believed the islands were in Lake Huron or were possibly Beaver Island archipelago. Uh, the Lieberts assume that they are on the islands that stretch between the Door Peninsula, Wisconsin, and the Garden Peninsula, Michigan's UP. The book constructs the story of the Griffin using various clues they have uncovered, old maps, scientific analysis, and objects like the beam recovered in 2013, and the writings of LaSalle and others, like the missionary priest Father Louis Hennepin, who sailed on the Griffin. We had to almost produce a detective book, said Kathy Liebert, the mystery book based on the facts. They said these facts point to a high probability that what they have found is LaSalle's lost ship. They call it thorough investigation of the site by academic researchers and French archaeologists. And then the article goes on. So we'll have links in the show notes like we do every week, and you can read the whole thing there. Um, I, I still think it's interesting that with the lack of funding, why the state does not give him permission to go ahead and explore that site. They're not going to do it. And you can't tell me these, when they say, you know, archaeologists with this kind of ship, why, you know, what are they going to do to it that is, you know, irreplaceable damage? It's been down there how many years? And if nothing else, what I would run is a magnetometer over it to see where the cannons are. If it's got the cannons, then that's the LaSalle or the Griffin. Yeah, I agree. The cannons are, would really determine it. Right. It seems like almost like how you know law enforcement get a warrant. He should be able to say, here's what we're looking for. This will prove the wreck. This will settle things. Let yeah. us search for this. This is our approach. This is how we're going to do it. Get a couple archaeologists to help you out. And uh, let's answer it. Well, if it's not theirs either, they don't want you to do it. I, I like the part which says, um, Lambert has been at odds with the state officials and other maritime archaeologists for decades. Professionals tend to take a low view of advocational explorers, sometimes deriding them as treasure hunters. He has accused them of trying to steal his discoveries out from under him using governmental authority to find the objects he has searched diligently to locate. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, every, everybody has an agenda and a perspective. And yeah. uh, if you're not working in the direction that they want you to, then, yeah. They don't have much oh, use for it. He's found you. the site. He's found the site. Or a site. Yeah. Why not? I'm, are they going to go look? No. no. 
I mean, look. They're going to do an exploration. No, they don't have any funds. Yeah. Let the guy do it. Yeah. Well, and and look at, uh, I mean, looking at this, this is obviously a shipwreck. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, you don't know what it is. Is it part of one that's been identified someplace else? It's not uncommon for pieces to come off as it's going down or be blown around or float. But uh, this is definitely a shipwreck. Uh, it is an older one. I mean, you can, you know, at least over 100 years old. Uh, and it looks from that one photo, it looks shallow. Yeah, by how bright well, that light is. With, yeah, well, yeah you know, the light is good, and he's diving without a hood, so it's either uh, very shallow and late in the year when the water's really warm up there. Yeah. Well, I, well, I tell you, let him look at it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So that does it in scuba in the news. That's like record time here. Um, and I have 8% battery. So is there anything you want to go over? We got about four minutes before we got to end this stream. Well, we didn't do a safety one last week, as I recollect. So if you've got a moment, let's go for it real quick. Good. Go for it. Okay. It's called Outer Limits. Again, lessons for life. A jittery diver is ill-prepared to test the skills and stamina. Those are the key words. The divers were exploring the shipwreck at the very edge of recreational diving limits, 130 feet of seawater. They were careful not to exceed that limit, but they hovered off the deck at their maximum depth. Kevin was uncomfortable on the dive. The depth, the loss of light, the pressure he felt, to see as much of the dive as he could in such a limited amount of time weighed heavily upon him. Kevin and his buddy wrapped up the dive and headed towards the anchor line. In the gloom, Kevin lost sight of his buddy, twisted around looking for anyone else on the wreck. In the progress, he got twisted up in the buoy line and began to panic. The diver. Kevin was a 41-year-old male with an advanced open water certificate, 50 lifetime dives, averaged 10 dives a year, mostly in the local quarry since he was certified. It was the first dive of the day for Kevin and his buddy. They were diving off a local charter with 10 other divers. The boat crew hooked into a dive buoy attached to the shipwreck that rested in 150 foot of seawater at the sand. It's deck and structure rising way up from there. Kevin had planned to dive to the maximum depth of 130 feet and he was diving on air. According to the Paddy Recreational Dive Planner, they had maximum 10 minutes on the bottom at that depth before they would exceed their no decompression limits. Kevin and his buddy were each using a single tank. They knew their air consumption rates would be high at that depth, and Kevin realized his bottom time would be limited by both time and air factors. Prior to the dive, though, Kevin tried to remember everything his dive instructor had taught him about deep diving in his advanced open water class. This was the deepest dive he had made since his training. Recall that he was loose light at depth and color. He wondered out loud how he might react to gas narcosis at depth. Nearing the end of their allotted dive time, Kevin's buddy signaled that it was time to head back to the boat. At first, Kevin didn't seem to recognize the signal or his buddy's meaning. But after a couple of tries, he nodded his head, swam toward the bow of the wreck where the buoy line was attached. At the buoy line, Kevin's buddy reported that Kevin turned back and forth in the water as if looking for something. In the progress, Kevin's tank valve and BCD twisted up in a piece of rope attached to the buoy line. Kevin's buddy tried to get Kevin to stop moving so he could assist him, 
but Kevin wasn't focusing on anyone or anything around him. Then Kevin spit out his regulator. Kevin's buddy tried giving Kevin his own alternate aerospace eye, but Kevin wouldn't take it. Another diver arrived as Kevin's buddy indicated he had to surface because he was low on air. Kevin was still entangled in the rope with no regulator. The third diver used a knife to cut Kevin loose, sent him to a surface by inflating his BC and making sure he had dropped his weight. Kevin was unconscious at that point. He floated to the surface alone with his regulator out of his mouth. When he arrived, the boat crew quickly grabbed the unconscious body, pulled into the boat, but were unable to resuscitate him. The medical examiner declared Kevin's death a drowning. The analysis. Several factors came into play in this incident, including the entanglement and quite likely gas narcosis. Just as important, though, was what happened before the divers entered the water. Kevin was uncomfortable with the dive from the get-go. He was still that way on the boat. The pre-dive stress likely contributed to the problem. Doctors David and Lynn Covard have performed groundbreaking research into panic situations in divers. Their initial research has been published way back in 2003 and excluded or included 12,000 accident reports. One of their primary findings was that pre-existing anxiety or stress combined with an unexpected or stressful event leading to panic in some divers. David explained in an email that the thing that came out most clearly was that all the panic divers were anxious before they even entered the water. This was true of student and experienced divers. Kevin hadn't been on a deep dive in several years. He had advanced upon an advanced open water certificate, but that is not the same experience on deep dive or had no experience on, on deep dives. In this case, it may have contributed to Kevin's nervousness since he vaguely remembered the potential problems with the dive, but couldn't recall what to do about them, nor check to find out. It's clear from the reports that Kevin also had gas narcosis. Only thing that negates gas narcosis is ascent. Slightly, the diving to 130 feet with limited air supply increased Kevin's worrying about not exceeding that depth how long his air would last, and seeing enough of the wreck before he would be forced to ascend. He got himself entangled in the floating rope, couldn't think clearly enough to extricate him or allow someone else to do it for him. Divers often question why a panicked diver spits out their regulator at depth, even when they have air in the tank. There isn't a real clear answer, but it is likely tied to panic and the tunnel vision that comes with it. Pre-dive nerves don't automatically signal there will be a problem, but they can be a precursor to an accident should something else happen. It's best to address the reason for concern before a dive and either overcome it by asking for help or don't dive. Lessons for life, don't dive beyond your comfort level. Seek out a refresher, dive with a buddy who's a dive master, dive instructor, take extra air. Be properly prepared and equipped for the dive. Deep diving on air with a limited gas supply increases your risk. Makes sense to me. All very good points, which we have covered yeah. many times before. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, when in doubt, don't. Yeah. But, you know, you paid for the charter. You don't want to look like a wimp. You know, you've got to overcome that macho BS a little bit. And uh, if you're not comfortable, you're, you're not making your, your hazard to your buddy also. 
it, it it's it's not worth it. Uh, no one to call it. Just plan on throwing any dive out. You get out there. Yeah. No. Nope. A dive not done right. is still a better than a day at work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and as a good buddy, though, you should try to recognize that in yourself and others. Yeah. Yeah, and and try to watch out for somebody. I mean, it and tactfully figure out how if you think somebody is in a situation that may be over their head, how do you point <laughs> it out and 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 let them save face a little bit. Yep. I mean, maybe a, a little bit of a you know, 28 or 32 mix might have made a difference on the narcosis. Having a bailout would have relieved the aspect I'm running out of air. Uh, I personally don't dive that deep without a bailout. Would that have made a difference? It could have. It I mean, should have. Out of air was his major concern. That would have uh, lightened up the uh, narcosis loading. Yep. And that's that's another reason I think it's great that our guys normally have been into a chamber to see how they're going to act yeah. at 130 feet. That, that gave me a lot more confidence with diving because you don't know. You hear the horror stories. And, and the other thing to be sure is that just because you behaved one way in the chamber doesn't mean – that is how you're going to do it every time. But it, it, it's nice to experience that feeling of narcosis and know what it is. Sometimes the fear of the yep. unknown is bigger than the actual event. Right. And again, you take that extra tank. You got air, you got time. Very good. Um, so here we are. We're at 7%. It's probably about three to four minutes. So we are going to get down to it. It's kind of like drumming along. Uh, so thank you, everybody, once again. If you're enjoying the program, go to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link. We can use your support. Your support is critical as we go and add new services and new features uh, as, we, as we're passing 500 episodes. You're going to help keep us going. 